All right. I'm excited to preach this morning. I was just so blown away at the progression of worship this morning. Literally, the theme through the whole thing, ending with Luke, Josiah prayed it too, Luke prayed it, what Chuck shared, the song posture, the heart posture during worship was a complete snapshot of this message. And literally, Luke ended worship with the verse that I bookend my message with, the, the first verse and then the last verse. And I just love how the Holy Spirit knows how to emphasize things from his heart. So I just want to preface this message with that. I, in my own heart, I was just saying to the Lord, you know what you're doing, and Lord, you take mere words, right? And you take them and you cause them to produce and do something that has eternal value in our hearts. And I don't know about you, but there's nothing more than I want this Sunday morning, right here, whatever this date is, is to get into God's heart, to get into His ways, His thoughts. The message, I named it, He Gets Us. No, just kidding. Just kidding. (laughs) Love you, Steve. Love you, man. (laughs) If you know, you know. (laughs) Oh, man, that's not the name of the message. (sighs) So I just want a couple things. Uh, Hey, Ian. Hey, guys. Family, I haven't seen a little bit. Um, I want to just highlight that that little clip and that ten minute video that was amazing uh, of just the picture of what's been happening over the last course of this year. Um, but that one spot, twice I've watched that video, and both times it just moved me in my spirit, man. Just completely moved me. It's when James got up there and he started praying, and I know the the first reaction is like, "That's cute." It's not, I guess it is cute a little bit, right? You got them up here storming and praying, but you know, there is no junior Holy Spirit. The fullness of the Godhead dwells in James. That, how old is he? He's eight years old, something like that. The fullness of God, the eternal God, Jesus, by his Holy Spirit, dwells in James. And there's this amazing verse that says that God ordains. Praise in the mouths, through the mouths of infant, infants and babes, children, in order to silence the foe and the avenger. There's something so powerful that happens when children, in the innocence of their heart, start to declare and proclaim the greatness of who God is. God actually says He ordains, He predestines praise from their hearts to do something as a tool, as a weapon in His hand against the enemy's camp. He literally silenced the foe and the avenger through that. I can say through my children I've watched over this last year, multiple times I have prayed and said, God, can I get some water from somebody? Uh, multiple times I have said, Lord, if it was only for the children what I see happening throughout the course of this year, it was so worth it just creating this context of prayer and worship, this place of beholding for you. Matthew 18, 19, and 20, I just want to, this idea, and I'm, and, and I'm guilty, I can say this, I probably were all guilty of hearing this specific verse and being familiar with it and just being like, yep, that's true, it's good. 
But for some reason this morning, it popped in me and I just, I had to wrestle against that familiarity because there's a great truth in it. Matthew 18, 19, 20 says, again, truly I tell you that if two of you agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three gather in my name, there I am with them. Oh, Jesus, we don't want to talk about you like you're not in the room this morning. What do we want to ask him if we agree in anything? He says he'll give it. That's an incredible invitation this morning. What do we want to ask him for this morning? Let's fix. Thank you so much. Hebrews 4, you know, it says he gives us access confidently, boldly to approach his throne of grace to find mercy in times of need. And more than ever, I've been feeling a time of need for our generation, for our time of human existence. We are here now, and we're part of this eternal kingdom whose increase will never end, and we've got stewardship with Jesus to walk out. And I just want to open in prayer with this verse out of Ephesians 3, 14. Let's just close our eyes and in unity approach Him confidently. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that you would grant us, according to the riches, the riches of your glory, to be strengthened with power through your Spirit, in the inner man, so that you, Christ, may dwell in our hearts through faith, and that we, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, the length, the height, the depth, and to know the love of you, Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that we may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Now to you who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we can think according to your power that works in us, to you be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. 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 For a while now, we've been hearing this overarching message of prepare, right? Consecrate yourself. This, this message is not even new to a few months. I know this message to be around for probably what I've heard in the church. I mean, for years there's been an ebb and flow of this message, but a broad banner message in the church. I've been hearing this for like probably the last five or six, seven years personally. The Lord's seasons aren't our seasons. His timing's not our timing. Sometimes we hear the invitation of his heart and we feel like we get a glimpse of the vision of what, like uh, Stephanie said, is on the horizon, the outpouring. And then he invites us into this posh, this place with him. And it's his kindness that leads us into this place because he wants to prepare us to steward this great thing that is coming. It's his kindness that would cause our hearts to come into that, like I like to picture it as chiropractic alignment, right? Have you ever been to the chiropractor before? You got muscles off. And I remember when I first came, I was very skeptical. This lady wanted to like do elbow drops on my back. 
my neck was already killing me. I could barely move, look right to left. And she's like, trust me, all that's just a symptom of something else. We need to get to the root. You're out of alignment. If we adjust the alignment, then your muscles go back to their original places. You start, your body starts to function the way it's supposed to function. And I believe that, in essence, is what God is doing right now. He's aligning his church because the level of glory, the level of outpouring and awakening that's coming to the earth, I believe, I can say it confidently before you, is going to just level the playing field before us. We are going to stand in awe at the visitation of God in our midst. What we tasted a year ago, I kept reminding my heart, no, this is just a, a, a spigot being turned on. And this is amazing. And that one little spigot, it did so much in us and through us. It provoked 24-7 adoration, acknowledgement of him. What happens when he looses the deluge of his presence on us as his people? And are we ready for it? There's this dream. I got to share it. There's this well-known prophet guy and he's... He's, he's flying in a plane in real life. He's going to a place to minister, I think actually on the West Coast. And he falls asleep in the dream. And in the dream, he's sitting in the plane. And he's got this very old leather-bound book, huge book, open in front of him with like an inch of dust on it. And... His heart's grieving. For some reason, his heart's grieving because of the dust on the page. And he started to have an awareness that he was flying over New England in the dream. Not where he was going to have, do ministry, but in the dream, it was something the Lord was highlighting to him. And as he looked upon the book, and then there was this old, uh, what are they, those, those feather pens laying next to it. And he started grieving, and then the Lord spoke to him and said, this is the chronicles of awakening and revival history in this land. And the dust bothered him. And he, he prayed something. I wish I could remember what the exact word was. And the, the plane started to shake and this gust of wind flew from the back of the plane right up through in this dream. The page flipped, the dust went flying, and that old pen stood up and the Lord boomed in that plane to him in the dream. The pen will write again. I believe that's prophetic promise over the land that we live in, New England. I believe that God does have incredible intentions from his heart to do something extraordinary in this land that they're calling, what, the frozen chosen? The least church, the least spiritual, the least Bible-believing place, the most humanistic intellectualism is, is, is running rampant in the school systems out of New England. It's just being poured out to the nations of the earth out of Boston. Man has a vantage point of what they think about New England, but I can't help but to believe that God loves to step on the scene of some of the most hard and difficult times of human history and display his ability. Where man's ingenuity, strategies, blueprints, desires, efforts does not get the credit for what comes. It's God in his sovereignty, in his power, deciding to step on the scene and do something that in and of ourselves we can't do. And I believe that full-heartedly. I believe that individually we all carry the call to steward revival in our hearts. We're all carried the call to walk in partnership, alive, connected to him, where our eyes are seeing in our relationships what he's saying. Our ears are hearing what he's saying. We're burning. You know, you get around these people, they sound different. 
People that are just in that all-consuming presence, fire of God. All you want to do is live for him more. That's me. When I get around, I think of certain people right now that are walking in just that place of connectivity to the vine. It just, every time, it just fuels, just fuels this place of, yes, you're worthy of everything I have. Let's reevaluate. Let's look. Let's, let's look at the life and see what we're doing. But there's something corporate that I believe is different than the individual stewardship of revival. If we look through revival history, we see that God, in his wisdom, in moments of time and in place, right? Geographical territory, for whatever reason, God responds and does something historic. The Jesus movement, he did it. I heard recently this guy, Lou Engle, talking about it. He said, you know, we see prayer preceding outpouring all throughout history, Prayer preceding moves of revival as we look back and we see, wow, God, you stirred up this on the West Coast with, uh, um, no, early 1920s, a black, what's his name? Seymour. William Seymour. Seymour, right. In a prayer movement, then there was an outpouring of something that reached the nations of the earth. And he said, what about this Jesus movement? And the Lord spoke to him and, and showed him it was the, the mothers in the kitchens that were crying out for their children that were getting caught up in this sexual revolution, that were getting caught up in this free-spirited thing that was devoid of God. But there was a rumble still even before that, the mothers crying out for their children. And I can't help but notice and get so encouraged that everywhere I look, prayer in the preeminence of Jesus, this ongoing on earth as it is in heaven posture, day and night, night and day engulfing the globe. And this is not a separate thing from the church. It can't be. And I think that we're seeing right now by things we're hearing about, it can't be separate from the church. He said, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nation. It's one of the primary identities for the church to walk in. My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. There's something that that posture and invitation to prayer, what it does in our hearts with him. And that's some of the stuff I want to talk about here today. I think that an important starting point is this statement I'm about to make that can be a little bit offensive to religious mind, even good intention, religious thinking, that there is in this message of consecration, in this message of wholeheartedness preparation, there is zero we could do to improve on our righteousness. There's absolutely nothing we can do to improve on our standing before God. We are justified by faith. That's like the best news I've ever heard. Galatians 2.16 says, Nevertheless, knowing that a person is not justified by obedience to the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even when we believed in Christ Jesus, so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by obedience to the law, since by obedience to the law, no flesh will be justified. What? (laughs) Romans 3.20, for by obedience to the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Paul said it, if there was anyone that could boast in righteousness, it was him according to the law. 
He said he was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews in regard to the law. He was a Pharisee. As for zeal, he persecuted the church. As for righteousness, listen to this. As for righteousness based on obedience to the law, he considered, I don't even know how he said this statement, I was faultless. How? As for, I mean, that, that verse, we could just sit there all day long. As for righteousness based on obedience to the law, faultless. But then he goes on to say something so mind-blowing. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Knowing, key word, knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them as garbage now, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from obedience to the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. What did he say he considered all his own acts of righteousness were a loss compared to? The surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. There was this recognition that came into him that he realized that the pursuit of righteousness in his life was not to gain mercy and grace. It was because of mercy and grace he pursued righteousness in his life. There is an important, important distinction foundationally in the way we respond to this message of giving all of our life to him. That it's a byproduct of what he's done. Justified, we stand fully received by the gift of imputed righteousness. And it's so no man can boast. And so we have nothing when we stand before him. We can say, thank you for receiving me. I did, look at all these things I did. It goes against every human understanding of what love is. But he considered all lost comparing to knowing the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. There is a major difference between trying to live for God to gain right standing or ability to be used by him and knowing, having an intimate relational connection experientially with Christ Jesus. And from that place, there is a byproduct of a changed life. Desires, motives changing. Do we see the difference? Because I think that subtly we hear the call, me, we hear, or I've given the call five years ago to this passionate call for consecration, just abstaining, abstaining, abstaining. What can I do to be ready to be used by you? And it always produced like this, at the end of the day, it produced me. Self, controlling self is self. Right? There's a byproduct, a fruit that is produced through us. And that's what we're going to get into here. How that takes place where the desires of our life change out of the place of communion, beholding, and fellowship of Jesus. Let me just read that last paragraph one more time just so we're tracking. There is a major difference between trying to live for God so that we gain right standing or ability to be used by Him and the difference of knowing him, having an intimate relational connection, experiential with Christ Jesus, and then from that place, there'd be a byproduct of a changed life. Desires changing, motives changing, hunger, pursuits change. It's so important to see through that nuance 
of the starting place, the root that produces everything else in our life. The place of beholding Jesus, the place of communion, fellowship with Jesus, it ought to be the first place, the first place invitation to every believer. Word, and that's why this, I I believe it's just the greatest gift Jesus could give a community and a church is this habitation, this place of day and night ability to just corporately, individually, corporately come before him and just declare, God, this is about you, it's for you, and most importantly, it's, it's through you. It's not void of efforts, we'll get into that, but it's, it's we're starting at the root, the starting place of every good thing from us. It's not us trying to gain something, frantically trying to get ready for something. No, it's beholding, it's intimate, it's where the first place becomes the first place, and we see him high and lifted up. Isaiah 6 was the the resounding chapter in my heart in the beginning of this habitation. He said, I I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And what was his response? Woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. Which is, it's not just like anyone saying that. In the Old Testament, the prophet was literally somebody that was set apart to be the actual verbatim voice of God to a generation. And now we see through all generations, Isaiah, right? Through the Bible. His response in seeing the fullness of the unveiled reality of God in the throne room was like, oh my God. (laughs) Look at you and look at me. Whoa, I bow. Can I get any lower? Can I get any lower before you? Man with burning eyes of fire. But the amazing, (laughs) the amazing attribute of Jesus displayed in this verse. What does he do in this posture that was produced from beholding? This, This confession, this confession, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. He takes a coal, right? He takes a coal from the altar and he touches them. And and Isaiah's response was like, Lord, if in despite of me, you want to still use me, look at you, look at me. If you choose to use me for your glory, here am I, God. My life is yours. Send me. Send me. I want to waste it all, God. I want to waste it all. What's 80 years? We're going to stand in eternity with you. It will never end. It will never end. God, if I'm seeing rightly, I realize this little blip of time is nothing in comparison for what we're living for we're sojourners we're exiles this isn't our home it's not more about here than there do we realize that even in all our efforts of building his church the chief cornerstone it's not more about here it's not more about here there's an eternal song an acknowledgement the worth of jesus Every tribe, every tongue, every language, every nation of every generation. Come on. In one voice proclaiming, declaring together, you're the name above every names. It's eternal reality and it needs to mark us. And more than mark us, it needs to ruin us for our pursuits. It needs to ruin us for our desires. God loves, he's given this life for good things in us too. This isn't some, I don't even know that word, where we just self 
take everything good out of our life to try to be like, oh, this means I'm spiritual and holy for you. No, it's nothing about that. It's this place of communion and connectivity where we, we, be, we behold, we become filled with what we're beholding. You are what you eat. What are we consuming? And this is that consecration message here. In the beholding, here's the reality that you can evaluate your soul, your mind. What are we consuming? What are we beholding? What do we watch? What do we spend our conversations on? What are we sowing into? Our spirit man, our soul, or our flesh? What are we consuming? There will be a fruit for what we consume. Evaluate. Are you reaping life or death in your thoughts? Are you reaping life or death in your emotions? Are you reaping life or death in your relationships? You will know if you're sowing to the spirit of the flesh predominantly. He's not looking, I've said it before and I'll say it again, I'll say it the day I die. He's not looking for perfection from us. We cannot give it to him. There's a reason his mercy is new every day because we need his mercy to be new every day. Because we... No one's exempt. Paul, who was faultless in accordance to living, no matter how someone presents to you up here, it, it doesn't matter. We are all level at the foot of the cross. We should, no matter if you didn't have the big testimony in your, your background, it doesn't matter. Your sin separated you eternally from God. And the same rich love, according to his mercy, rescued you, just like he did from somebody with this testimony of crazy depths of depravity. The awareness of the unsurpassable love of God towards us is for every single person when we realize like Isaiah did, woe is me, God. Oh my goodness. Look at you in all your glory. My life is yours. I deserve nothing from you. I deserve nothing from you. I de What's that song? You showed me mercy. I deserved hell. You showed me mercy. I deserved hell. The reality, is that a reality in us? That gospel, like Chuck was saying, central reality in our hearts has to be there. But you know what? It's a cultivated thing because we can move on. We almost feel like it's like elementary. It's not elementary. It's everything. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's everything. We're not going on for the better works. That's not what it is. The better works are produced out of the simplicity of the gospel taking root in our life. If we move away from the awe and wonder of the kindness and the extravagance of his mercy, that's a step in the wrong direction. Everything ought to be done from this place. We sometimes wonder why fear has a grip in our life. Why discontentment has a grip. We wonder why love of money, comparison, jealousy, depression, anxiety, loneliness, self-hatred, lack of clarity or direction, unable to discern his will, pessimistic, negative thinking about most people and most things in our conversation. What is the fruit of your lip? It will tell you what the fruit of what you're sowing to is. What are we beholding? What are we consuming? What are we fascinated by? It's so important. 2 Corinthians 3, 16 through 18. But, whatever a person, but whenever a person turns to the Lord. Come on. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. 
Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. But we all with unveiled faces now beholding as in a mirror or dimly lit glass the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. He's saying it's in the beholding, it's in the gaze, it's in this place of connectivity to the vine where we get transformed. Literally says it. When we turn to him, we're being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as the Lord, the Spirit. There is something about this conscious turning, this conscious beholding. It's not a replacing of works. I mean, what a foolish thought. We're talking about the roots. We're talking about the first place foundational realities, the all-consuming infatuation with Jesus. And there's war against it every day. We live in the human frame. We live in a media age. Everywhere we turn, we take out our phone. What was it, 15 years ago, you couldn't take out your phone and just start watching Netflix on it. Constant Instagram, Facebook. If we're not aware that there's a, a, a massive just thing trying to vie for our limited capacities of devotion, we got to wake up and shake that off because you are what you eat. You are what you consume. You are what you will behold. And the fruit of your lips and the fruit of your soul and emotions will tell you what you're sowing to. But God being rich in mercy, He's faithful to complete what He starts within us. But there is a turning to Him that is so paramount, that is so paramount that we don't just barely get through this life just constantly just trying to abstain from sin. That's the Christian existence. For years, that was my Christian existence. If I could just abstain from sin and love you, God. But the abstaining from sin, I always just felt at the end of the day, I just felt hopeless. The tree kept producing fruit. And I'm like, and then there was a day I realized that tree had to be put to death. There had to be a new identity, a new understanding of who I was, fully righteous before him. And then this posture of beholding, this posture of connectivity started to produce a changed heart, a changed mind, a changed desires inside of my life. It's the starting point, and it will change and alter the course of your life so drastically if you can get a hold of this, this one, this one thing. Our place of connectivity to the vine produces the fruit of the Spirit. Rather than us trying to produce love, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control, have you tried to produce, produce patience? Who's married? <laughs> Who has kids? <laughs> it's like, well, I, don't, I forget where it's from. It's like, I pray for patience. It's like, oh yeah, good prayer. <laughs> There's a byproduct though. He said the fruit of the Holy Spirit. It's not the fruit of our will that produces that. Does anyone testify to that? Has anyone in a moment of conflict has just been so flesh? Me? Come on. So flesh, and you're just like, you walk away and you're like, ah. You justify for like a good minute and a half, two minutes, maybe more. I don't know, sometimes a day if you're married, you're just like, yeah, you know what? Justified. And then the Holy Spirit just reminds you. And then there's another overflow of expression that can come. When you're in this place with the Lord of real communion relationship and you get surprised at the patience that overflows in conflict have you experienced that side where you step back and just say whoa that is a changed desire 
I didn't just freak out. I didn't flip out. I didn't just hold a grudge for two months against that person for absolutely nothing. It's like this God consciousness. It's like the fear of the Lord. It's the way I like to think of that term, the fear of the Lord. It's this awareness to his nearness. And our decisions, our conversations, everything starts to just get influenced by this reality. It's, he's not some you know, out there God. The fullness of who he is is in us. He sees what we see. I know, oh, like, we're idiots a lot of the times. I'm an idiot a lot of the times. Or there's times where it's just like, you know, you look back and you just say, God. But the merciful work of his spirit in us to change, to walk with us through that and to change the desires of our, to the desires of our heart. Okay, it's getting back to first place, which produces the changed heart and desires. There is still cooperation, but we pursue righteousness because of his mercy and grace, not to obtain mercy and grace and favor from him. There's a big difference. If you love me, you will obey my commands. I always, I think I preached it a year ago at the beginning of this, uh, uh, quite a bit on that one verse. And forever it was this idea of like, I love you, so I'm going to show it by my obedience to you. And I, and I get that. Like, I get that even a sincere place and a good place from that. But as this message started to find its root and work in me, I started to realize, no, if I love you, I will obey your commands because I want to. How could I not look at you? When I'm seeing you rightly and I'm not just seeing you from here, I'm not just seeing you from my experiences, but I'm, ex- I'm seeing you from this place of personal uh, stewardship of relationship with you. Like when you first get married, everything is like, whoa, like Wes said, like this is, I don't want to sleep. I don't want to eat. I'll do anything. We call it the honeymoon period. And I've even heard that same term over you as a believer. And, and, and I get that to a point, right? Because there is a place where there's action. There is a place where there's maturity and responsibility and stewardship. But the, the honeymoon of just knowing that love from God and giving him that love, that divine exchange, that should never end for the believer. He gave such a, a, a high cost. He gave literally the most prized possession of heaven. Like, I love this song. What kind of king leaves his throne? What kind of king leaves his throne to come die for people that have just been rejecting him for 4,000 years? All we did, the common occurrence throughout human history was rejection. And he said, well, you know what? This was the plan. We knew this was going to happen. All right, Jesus, it's time, right? If you love me, you will obey my commands. If you find yourself struggling, wrestling with being able to just walk in that manner of your calling, right? Walk in the manner of your calling. If you're finding that just habitual, I'm talking like day in, day out, struggle in one day, in, out, one foot in, just no grace, no strength. Sometimes he allows us to, to see the fruit of our own effort when we're doing it to obtain something from him. He just kind of says, all right, Noah, go ahead. I want that to get worked in you. The full, you, you need to see you rightly and you need to see me rightly. I did it all for you. I see you through Jesus. It's the only way. The veil was torn. We have a high priest that went before us who's made us perfectly, 100% righteous before the Father. 
If you love me, you will. It's responsive. It's overflow. It's the change heart and mind. The root for the changed life needs to be right for the fruit to be right. True consecration starts from beholding, from time spent in intentional relationship with Jesus as priority, as our desires change in the divine exchange of intimacy, the, vi- the vine produces fruit through its branches. There is this divine exchange, and I know I'm looking at a room full of people that have encountered and know that divine exchange of beholding and receiving and being a conduit of a changed life because of your relationship with Jesus and not simply just because of effort. We are not, this might, just hear me, hear this whole thing before you shut your ears after the first five words. We are not made just for good works. We are first and foremost made, first and foremost made for intimacy through the Holy Spirit with Jesus in the heart and mind of the Father. If we become so set on serving, we become mere workers. If we get so set on loving Him, you become so willfully submitted, joyful servants who will do anything for the Master. If we become so set on serving, we become mere workers. If we get so set on loving him, you will become willful, submitted, joyful servants who will do anything for the master. It's not one or the other, it's one before the other. I want quick testimony. We grew up, uh, my grandmother lived, grandparents lived in Maine on a farm, and we always had this other grandmother, this African uh, woman named Maria, and she lived at, the, at this farm, my hope and bringing. I didn't know much. I knew she came from the Congo back when it was the Congo, Congo Africa and that she was taken out of there during time of conflict. We never really heard much of her story. Try to be quick with this. And we were doing like a five-year anniversary at uh, Freedom House, this, this house of prayer that we had. And, and it was kind of a last-second re- uh, thing. We're just like, oh, it's five-year on the day. This Saturday will be the actual five-year anniversary. This is going to be, I was so excited. I thought something good was going to happen. We didn't, it wasn't like we were pushing for an event or anything like that, but just this is going to be good. So we get there, the worship leaders get there, me and Elijah get there, a couple foster kids we had at the time, and we're just there, and six o'clock rolls on, no one's showing up. Six, ten, six, I'm like, this is hilarious. No one's coming. We usually got 20, 30 people, something like that on a Saturday night, and I'm just like, okay, like, all right, God, whatever you want to do, we'll just, should we go get pizza and make it a fellowship night? Like, what should we do? You know, so we're just joking around. In walks my mom and this lady, Maria, she's like 90 years old. And this, this thing, just awareness, right? These moments with the Holy Spirit, just an awareness popped up in me. I was like, hey, there's a 90-year-old woman in the room. We should be listening to her. So I was like, hey, Maria. And it was like, almost like she was ready for this question. I was like, hey, Maria, can you tell us about your life a little bit? Tell us, we're all young people here. Tell us, share, share your heart with us. She goes, well, as a little girl, I was brought up in a tribe in the Congo of Africa, and there was massive conflict going on. There was militias going into these villages and just wiping out. It was, it was bad, so bad that the Belgium army had to go over and try to help and train them to use weapons. And like all the women and children were literally getting taken and brought different, I mean, it's bad, real bad stuff. And uh, So she was over there during that, and one of the Belgian officers was a Christian, and she remembered as they were trying to bridge the gap of communication, he was always talking about, he was all these orphaned kids trying to talk about this God, this Jesus, and he would say, pray to him. So this is what she's telling us. So as a young girl, I don't know where my mom and dad is. They're not telling me. They've been killed. And uh, she said, I just prayed, like, God, help us, help us. A simple prayer from like a 10-year-old kid. 
And she goes, what the little did I know was across the world in the Midwest in the early 1900s was a little Baptist church in the Midwest. And this Assemblies of God thing had broken out, this Pentecost thing had broken out, and there was all these itinerant ministries just all of a sudden going everywhere and just loosing the word, loosing signs and wonders, calling for evangelism, the Great Commission. And she goes, and in this little church of 50 people, they had never heard the message of the Great Commission. It's crazy, right? 1930s. And this preacher came in, and he's preaching on the Great Commission, and she says, the whole room's just in tears under the conviction of God. What have we been doing? And she goes, little did I know, God answered my prayer through a 20-year-old girl in that service that day. She heard the audible voice of God say, I want you to go to Africa and find the children. I mean, listen, this is a one experience. I don't think it was the, the healthiest way, I'll just say that, the way this all went down. But this is the testimony. She felt God told her to go. Her family, the church, kind of was very hesitant. They knew there was a lot of travel back then. She wasn't just hopping onto a plane with a neck rest and sleeping and getting up and then showing up there to a ministry base. She had no idea where she was going. She was not connected. She was loosely connected to uh, some assembly of God thing that had no base and there was nothing going on. And she literally got on a boat after two months of convincing her family and church. They took up an offering and she got on a boat and went to Africa. What did she see in God that day during the Great Commission that caused her to willingly give her whole future being a wife, a mother, a homemaker? What provoked her heart to waste her life on Jesus that day? That's the revelation I want on my heart. That's the revelation I want on my heart when I think about Jesus, when I commune in fellowship with Jesus. She went there. The Belgian army said, you need to turn around and go home. You have no idea. White girl coming here. You have no idea what you're going to be captured here. There's nothing. We're not here to protect you. She refused, insisted on staying, stayed there 15 years, led all these kids to the Lord. Maria was one of them. And then at 20 years old, Maria ended up getting taken, brought over to the States, Belgium, and then the States. But that was her testimony, a simple prayer as a 10-year-old girl being answered across the globe because someone saw the worth of Jesus and willingly gave the rest of their life not knowing what would happen because you're worth it. There's a question as his children, do we relate to his family more than to him? This is a, an important question. Do we relate to him exclusively and primarily through his family, the church context? Is that how we relate to Jesus primarily? I think it's so easy for that in the modern church system to be the primary way. We come on Sunday, we come to the life groups, and this is our connection point to Jesus. But apart from that, there's no real growing uh, connection and relationship with Jesus. I've been there. I've seen people be there. We are called to commune with him first and then to relate to the family out of connection to the head. If we look first to the family of God, we become a consumer. We come to see what you have to offer me. It's an unhealthy codependence. You get people that get burnt out, offended, disappointed. They hop around from church to church because their only context in their relationship with God is how they're seeing it displayed through other people of what they're hearing from the pulpit more than what they're seeing on the floor of their closet saying, God, look at you. My life is yours. 
If we look first to the family of God, we get a consumer and healthy codependence. If we first find it in him, we become an heir, a co-heir with him, an ambassador, and we come pouring out, we come serving, we come wholeheartedly laying our lives down for the bride just like he did. We need the root to be right first. I see this invitation to accommodate him as a gift, to prioritize ministry to Jesus at the core of all that we do. This priestly calling, this day and night acknowledgement as a company of people, this declaration of his worth on earth as it is in heaven, this holy alignment gift, this chiropractic of adjustment. This confusion that I often hear is that this prayer thing is dangerous because it might replace the Great Commission. I would say how foolish of a statement. It is a launching pad into the wholehearted, submitted partnership to his call for us individually and corporately. The posture that's formed in this place is humility. It's the esteeming of his ways over our own. It's his thoughts taking over our thoughts. It's the bounding, the bowing of our grand ideas and how great we think we are. The over and over embedding of the reality that we are all and all that we have and all that we do is for him and is for his worth. Prayer posture produces it. Dependence, humility, proper perspective, God's evaluation and hearts towards matter. He said, the harvest field is ripe, so therefore go, right? No, the harvest field is ripe, therefore pray. Why did he make such a statement? Why didn't he say go? That makes no sense. The harvest field is ripe, therefore pray. Because he was making first thing first in their heart. Because it says, then therefore the Lord will ekbalo you. And this word ekbalo means to to thrust you, to, to send you with all his might into the harvest field. He wants to ekbalo us. But he wants us submitted, wholehearted lovers of who he is where we're willing to do anything for him. The harvest field is ripe. Therefore, pray that the Lord would ekbalo. It's not the replacement of going. It's the first step. I don't think the lack is laborers. I think it's the lack is enamored, enthralled lovers who will willingly give, give all for the one that they gaze upon. Connectivity to the vine is the root. It must take first place. And then the response, my life is yours, Isaiah 6. Here am I, send me. I saw the Lord high and lifted up. Paul prayed it. Ephesians 3, just like we started, just as Luke prayed. It's the word of the Lord for us. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he that he would grant you according to the richness of his glory to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. That according to the richness of his glory, gazing upon him to be strengthened with power through his spirit in our inner man. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, the length, the height, the depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. Is that not the result of when you come into this place where you're seeing him rightly, where you're undone? Beyond religious practice or going, and we need to have these practices in our life, but I'm saying it's something beyond that. It's something that happens when there is a decision of the heart that causes you to leave this place and still prioritize Him in your life over all things.
And then we start to see the length, the width, the depth, the height of his love for us. And to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far and more abundantly beyond all we can ask, think according to his power that works in us. To him be all the glory in the church, through the church, in Christ Jesus, to all generations forever and ever. Believe it or not, that was supposed to be the first quarter of my message today. But honestly, during worship, when I saw the emphasis of the Lord just start to do what he does in his body, we, want to be, we don't want to go beyond where he's going. We want to just stay right in tune, right in step. This is what Stephanie was preaching for three weeks in a row. First place has to be first place. And then the mission comes flowing, raging through that place because our lives are surrendered. We, we properly see our life is not our own. And so I would say the, the invitation here this morning is simply a fresh start with Jesus in this place. First love. That thing was prayed multiple times. Chuck, other people today. That has to be first love where the, the totality of our life and our dreams and our goals, all that stuff just comes into submission because we want, we want to give them all. We know there's going to be a day where we stand before him. We know there's going to be a day, and, and I love what R Leonard Ravenhill says. He says, there, there will be one moment of regret in heaven, and then that's it. It's not in or out. If your faith is, if you're saved, the deposit of the Holy Spirit's in you. The one regret will be when we seal the un see the unveiled face of Jesus, that we didn't give more. This is not an anxious thought. I want to make sure I say this at the end. This is not anxious. Lord, this is just search me and know me, like Danielle said. Search me and know me. Is there anything in me that fights against what you want to do in my life? It's willingness. It's not, hey, sell all so you can be received by Jesus. No, is it, are you willing to sell all? Have you stewarded the affections of your life? Are they on the table? Is your hand closed or is your hand open to the Lord? If he asks for everything, are you willing to get it? Give it. If he asks for you to be a mother in your home where nobody sees and knows, and it's not the outward ministry, is that what you're willing to give him? If, if you're called to go in your workplace and just be a light and a conduit of his love, is that your willingness to die? This thing that's just saying, whatever it is, Lord, whatever the pathway is for me, it's just the consuming inner reality that causes us that whenever he decides to step on the scene of the life and says, here, an assignment, here, here, this is what I want you to do for you. Will you be ready? Will you be willing? And if this is a fresh sign up for you, let's do an old fashioned altar call here. If there's something in you that wants to sign up in a fresh way to Jesus, just prioritizing this intimate relationship with Jesus in your life, first place being first place. I just want to encourage you as we do a little worship, come to the altar and bring them your yes.